This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. There, um, as I said off the top, there has been a meeting that's been going on at Hamilton City Hall today. It started at the crack of dawn. It's still going on right now. It is talking about, well, what else would it be talking about? It's talking about the LRT. We don't talk about anything else in the city. We finished with the stadium after talking about it nonstop for a number of years. And now all we talk about is the LRT. It's the only topic that we're allowed to discuss. And because the meeting is so epic today, so long and drawn out, I thought, okay, I could bring in somebody who could speak on the pro LRT side, but I know, and you know what they're going to say. They're not going to tell you anything new. And I could bring in someone who's against the LRT and, but you know exactly what they're going to say. We're not hearing anything new in this. So I thought, you know what, let's bring in someone. Now, you know this person very well, but someone who's been involved in this discussion from day one as an interested observer, but also as really the leader of the discussion, a guy who's usually framing the debate about LRT and moving the debate along. That would be Bill Kelly, host of the Bill Kelly Show, every morning from 9 till 12 here on 900 CHML. William, thanks for doing this tonight. Scott, good to have you with us. I, I gave my guess, by the way, and, and, and you know what? Luke did laugh at me. <laughs> but I, I think I know the answer, but I'm not going to give it. So I'll, I'll leave that to it. Listen, can I, can I change the, the discussion for just a second? Of course. Uh, before we get into this, uh, and it, it's kind of a sports-oriented thing, okay? I'm just watching my Bruins play here tonight. Uh, and they honored a, a great hockey player and a guy who Hamilton hockey fans know, Gary Doak, who passed away the other day. Uh, who is a longtime Boston Bruin, but Gary Doak was also a longtime Hamilton Red Wing in junior A hockey for many, many years. And people who followed junior hockey for many years know Gary, and he was a great contributor to the Red Wings for many, many years and passed away. So I just want to give a salute to him. Uh, I, 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 I never met the guy. I was just a kid watching them, but he was a guy who came up here, played at the old Hamilton Farm with the Hamilton Red Wings, and had a great NHL career, and he passed away at age 71 just a couple of days ago. And we just want to give some props to him, who's a, a fabulous guy who has, a, 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 like many others, like Rick Smith and Pitt Martin and Paul Henderson and so many others, who have a great steeped history here in Hamilton hockey, who uh, also had a great career in professional hockey, too. So I just wanted to acknowledge no, Very that. well done. Yeah, very well. You know, and the Bruins have taken a few uh, lumps lately, because Milt Schmidt had passed away not that long ago. It's it's less than a year since he passed away, I think. And so, yeah, yeah. it's... Um, thank There's you for doing that. Guys, a lot of the guys who played for the Bruins, and I, I don't want to get on a Boston Bruins stuff here, uh, had that Hamilton-centric hockey. You know, Pitt Martin, of course, played here. Paul, you know, and, and Gary Doak and, and Rick Smith, who played for many years in the Bruins defense. And uh, and Ron Smith, of course, who was a Hamiltonian, never played for the Hamilton Junior Red Wings here, but and Murray Oliver and so many others. So there's there's a connection here between Hamilton hockey and, and, and the NHL. And uh, Gary Doak was uh, the latest. And uh, we, we, you know, give our sympathies to, of course, course. family and friends who... who you know, mourn his passing. Absolutely. No, thank you for bringing that up. Uh, now, city, city yes, on to LRT. I, it's, I'm trying talk to talk about LRT. Neither do I much anymore. No, we, we almost never <laughs> mention it. Um, he said sarcastically. I'm hoping is, that someday is, is the we the meeting's still on. If the meeting is still on, and I'm hoping that one day, Bill, we can actually change this and talk about BLTs because that's way better. But, oh, but in the meantime, the Homer Simpson me. Oh, BLT. Oh, yeah, BLTs. Yeah. Mm. Uh, here's the impression I'm getting from watching from a safe distance this meeting today and all the other meetings that just go on and on and on and on. Those in favor 
are now never, ever going to change their opinion. Those opposed are now never, ever going to change their opposition. And I'm talking citizens and members of council. So why are we dragging this thing out longer and longer and longer? Why don't we just get on with this, whatever it is we're going to get on with, and be done with it? What is the point of continuing to drag this thing out ad infinitum? There is no point. That, that's the reality. And, and I'm going to talk about this on the show tomorrow, and I'm glad that you asked me to, to contribute to this today on your show, Scott. Here, here's the reality. This is such a debate, a polarized debate. Nothing is going to be said at this meeting tonight or in subsequent meetings that's going to change anybody's mind. You're either for it or you're against it. That's, that's the way things are right now. So let's and, – and this phone survey is, is really just – that's, that's BS. That's not going to change anything anyway. We know that the majority of support for that is in the downtown areas, and when you go to the mountain and to other areas, you know, the support for this weans to, to the point of opposition. But it was the same thing with the Red Hill Expressway and the, and the Link. You know, the, the support for that was in Stony Creek and on the mountain, and the rest of them didn't give a damn. So why are we even going through this exercise? The question is not... Well, what do the voters think? The question is, is this good for the city? And councillors can't seem to get their head around that right now. Well, is it fear, Bill? Get to the point of saying, well, I need to represent what my voters think, and get to the point of, is this good for the city? Because as a city councillor, your responsibility is, can we do this, and is it going to make the city work better? And if the answer is yes, then vote for it. If the answer is no, then vote against it. But we have... Probably half of the council right now, Scott, who who can't make a decision. I, I, I and I say that guardedly because I think they already know how they feel about this, but they don't want to make a vote on it. They're they're afraid to make a stand on this because of the consequences. Is yeah, I was going to say, is it fear? Because at the meeting today, there were a number of people who got up. There were I think forty delegations, and a number of them who got up said, "Listen, uh, if you vote for this." We will work diligently to make sure you are voted out of office. And then someone else got up and said, if you vote against this, we are going to work diligently to make sure you are voted out of office. And I'm wondering how much of this now is politicians, honestly, Bill, saying, how exactly do I work my way out of this conundrum now? Because it's such a mess. Well, and, and there's the problem. There is a provincial, or a provincial election next year and a municipal election next year. And, and, and this, this item is obviously going to be key to this. But forget about the provincial election, which is going to happen about a year from now, and go back to the, the fall of 2018 and the, and the municipal election, okay? And these people are looking at that and saying, if I want to keep my seat, what do I need to say to keep the voters in my area, my ward, on side with me? Uh, is that the best way to, to represent the city, or do you have to take the broader view and say, okay, what's best for the city right now? But those and, things are in I'm conflict. I'm not so sure everyone is doing that. I'm not sure they're looking at that perspective. I'm not so sure that they're saying, I'm, I'm looking after my political future as opposed to the best interest of the city. But those things are in conflict under the current ward system. Now, I don't want to. I don't want to get into a whole debate. I don't want to get into a whole debate about redoing the ward systems again. But those well, things. Not happen anytime soon, no. But those things are in conflict. If you want to keep your seat, you have to keep your constituents happy, and your constituents who disagree with this means you have to vote against something that you may or may not think is good or bad for the city. Yeah, exactly. And and therein lies the conundrum right now. And and you know what. 
council is not is are not the only ones who are concerned. You know, the province and Metrolinx, are, they're all complicit in this, too, because they've been very vague on what needs to be done, who's doing what, what the responsibilities are and everything like that. They, they've only clouded the issue, and, 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 you know, a pox on them for what they've done. But at the same time, the ultimate decision here is on city council to say, look, it, we have to make a decision on the information that we have before us. And councillors who are saying, well, we don't have all the details, you're never going to get all the details. You're never going to. You know, when they voted on the expressway, they didn't have all the details about costs and everything else, but they said, you know what, it looks like it's the best interest of the city. They have to do that same analysis right now on what's happening here and say, does this work for the city? If the answer is no, vote against it and have the backbone to stand up and say that. But nobody seems to want to do that right now. But Bill, you also just said part of this is on the province. And I'm looking at this and today part of the meeting, and it's lost in the endless other stuff that's going on, but part yeah. of the meeting was some changes again to the planning. And I think a lot of the people who are... Oh my God, another change? Well, are you kidding me? The people who are either against it or even agnostic towards it, but who are willing to listen are saying, wait a second we're supposed to be now voting on something and every time we talk about this it's different than what we were talking about before when do we actually know what it is we're getting and that i think is also very confusing to people it is and 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 i feel some sympathy for the councillors on this i get that but at the same time anybody who sits back there on council and says i need all the answers about this 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 and this you're going to get those we, we didn't get that on the expressway. We didn't get that on the stadium. Well, who's going to pay for this? What about, you know, if the lights go out, who's going to replace them? You know, at some point, you've got to fish your cut bait and say, I think on, on a conceptual basis, this is the right thing to do. And there's a whole lot of counselors right now that are hiding behind that and saying, well, we don't have all the information. I, you know, and you know what? I, my view on this, Scott, is, is I, I support this on on a conceptual basis i think it's the right thing to do if we don't do it now at some point in the future we're going to have to say yeah we need lrt we need something like that but on the other hand you're never going to get a clear definitive point of view on this to say oh god all the answers are here we've got everything that never happens in politics that never happens you have to sometimes go with your instincts instincts rather and say, yeah that's the best thing to do and, and that's never going to happen. There are too, too many people that are hiding behind this and saying, let's, let's wait until we get more information. Paralysis by analysis can kill initiatives. That, that's it happened here before. That's exactly right. And we've been through this, as I said, with the stadium. We've been through this with Red Hill Creek. We've been through this with other things. And what I find really interesting and frustrating about it is that it seems the lessons from those previous things should have been, you know what, council? dragging this thing out and continuing to have delegations endlessly. Yeah, it's good to have public consultation, but at some point you have to actually, you have to make a decision at some point. And frankly, I, to this day, I have no idea why they had 40 delegations today who were standing up arguing for or against LRT, because quite frankly, I thought we were past that. I thought that decision had already been made to some degree. I don't even understand what council is doing at this point about this. I don't, I, I really don't understand why there is no decision or why there's no clarity. It just seems to me it's just constant obfuscation. Well, here's the problem. And, and I, I was not there today. I mean, I, I, as you, I followed the, the debate. You know, I From a safe distance. <laughs> Have you heard anything new? No. Have, no. You heard, have you, either pro or con, anybody, not just you or me, has anybody heard anything that says, oh, God, I didn't know that. No. I, that changed. 
you're either pro or con on this. At some point, you, you have to fish or cut bait and say you're either for it or against it. So what would have happened? And ultimately, it's the 16 people around the table that have to say, i got to make a choice on this. So I, I love the fact that there's public consultation. I love the fact that there are 45 you know, delegations, a lot of them pro, a lot of them con. And, and they're really reiterating the same points we've heard for the last two years. Council has to get off the pot and make a decision on this. What would have happened? You've been a city councillor. You've sat around that table. What would have happened if six months ago an absolute hard and fast decision had been made and they had stuck with it? Would the council have been hung out to dry by the citizenry saying you did not listen to us? There would have been people like that for sure. But Or would people have actually gotten past this now and come to grips with it? No. Whether it's a big issue like LRT or whether it's like, oh, I'm going to build a housing development in your ward, you're always going to hear negative and positive comments. But the, the, the responsibility of the councillor is to say, okay, I have to weigh your opinion pro, your opinion con, and look at the greater good and say, here's how I think this is going to work out. And you, you vote accordingly. You can't simply obfuscate the responsibility and say, well, I need more information. You have to make your decision on the, on, on the information that's available right now. There is never, Scott, and I found this to be the case. I was on council for 10 years. There's never going to be a situation when it's going to be slammed. I can say, whoa, boom, it's 98% in favor. Here we go. It's not going to happen. You have to make a decision. That's, that's why you get paid to do the job as a city councilor. And a lot of them are simply saying, you know, we're not doing it. We're going to wait until it's 100% sure. It's not going to happen. Last thing, Bill, I got because we got to go. What happens? And I know you've already said that the poll that's being done, the phone poll, is is ridiculous. But what happens if that poll comes back and it is 80% or 85% one way or the other? Does that make any difference whatsoever? Well, in some people's minds and in some counselors' minds, it might. But you know what? A hundred years ago, if we had done a poll and said, uh, should we do a poll? Should women have the right to vote? Uh, the people who had voted on that were all males. Uh, do, you, do you take that and weigh that and say the answer is no? Uh, in civil rights legislation, do you do the same thing? Do you simply say the people that have that? You can't do that. Bill Kelly, you will hear there are, him. There are huge, there are huge ramifications, economic ramifications about this. You, know, you have to look at the whole picture right now. It's not just, hey, if I live up on, uh, on South Coast Road in Ancaster, it's not going to affect me. Yeah, it is. You may not realize that, but the people that you have voted as a city councilor to represent you and to vote on this, they need to look at the bigger picture. And I, 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 I pray that all of them in wards 1 through 16 take that responsibility. Instead of looking at the people that are saying, well, I'm not going to vote for you again, as opposed to the people that are going to say, what's, what's best for the city of Hamilton? That's the decision they have to make. Bill will have much, much, much more, I'm sure, about this tomorrow morning. You can catch him at 9 o'clock oh, here yeah. on 900 CHML. Bill Kelly, appreciate the time tonight. Thanks. Thanks, Scotty. It Bye. is, um, yeah, you know what? I'm, I'm with Bill on that point, that if counselors are paid, I think, a lot of money. Now, sometimes... 
it seems like it's a lot of money because, you know, when you, as we talked about this the other day, when you go out and you have to just glide hand and go to a dinner, it doesn't, you know, it seems like, wow, they're being paid a lot for, it's the moments like this, that they are being paid these kind of salaries for. And I don't begrudge them because these are difficult city forming, city shaping decisions. I don't begrudge the counselors, the income they get, their salary they get. I think it's, these are tough things that they have to do, but, but. When you are paid that kind of salary to make those city defining decisions, you have to make those city defining decisions. It's part of the job. Yes, they get paid well. Yes, in many cases, because of the work they're doing, they deserve to be paid well. But if you were going to be paid well, you must do the work. You must make the hard decisions that sometimes are unpopular decisions. Here's the thing about this though now, listening again from a distance, keeping up with it on Twitter and other places today, we now have a situation in this city, and I I really believe this, that people are so dug in as a pro or a con. I don't think there's too many people that are now sort of saying, oh, I don't really know. I don't care. I don't have an opinion. I think most people have an opinion. They're either for it or against it. There may be a few in the mushy middle, but most aren't. Those people who are against LRT now, because this thing has dragged on so long and become so protracted and so, as I say, dug in, there is a fair segment of the community that on point of principle will never use the LRT. They may not use it because it's not convenient. They may use it because they don't need to. They may use it because of a number of other reasons. But there are others, and a lot of them, I think, that on point of principle are going to say, I hate this. I am never setting foot in this. And that is not a way you build transit ridership by having so many people ticked off. And look, that is, in large measure, the result of this debate carrying on and on and on and keeping putting more and more coal onto the flames of this and onto the fire and heating it up so that you get more and more people more and more angry rather than simply deciding what you're going to do. It is, it, it is a mess right now. It is an absolute mess. And no matter which way this thing goes, you are probably going to have half or more, depending which way it goes, of the city enraged. If this thing gets stalled until Kathleen Wynne gets voted out of office, which seems inevitable, and the conservatives get voted in, and they say, man, look at those books. There's no way we could afford a billion dollars. I'm sorry, we're not paying for this. This is off the table. And believe me, show me the last Western government anywhere in the developed Western world who of any political stripe who has won election, taken over, and not said, oh boy. The, the books that were left to us are way worse than what we were told. The finances are in far worse shape than we had ever been told. Well, let me tell you something. In Ontario, the finances are already being described as awful. So when the conservatives come in, and they probably will, they are going to say, oh, this is even worse than we could have ever imagined. LRT, we can't afford a billion dollars. It's off the table. So if, the, if this delays long enough, the LRT will go away. Because the new government will say we simply can't afford it. Depends which way you want to go, but there are going to be angry, angry, angry people no matter which way this thing falls. All because, in my mind, we couldn't make decisions and we've allowed the fire to burn brighter and brighter and brighter so people got angrier and angrier and angrier. That is the biggest problem here. It was always going to be contentious. 
We've made it. Sorry, council. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. You probably, and I'm, I'm generalizing in a large way here, but you probably, when you have either been to a hospital to have a procedure done or to have to use the emergency room, or if you've talked to someone who has had to go to hospital for some reason, probably have heard some complaints at some point because someone will say, oh, I had to go and I waited forever and ever, or I had to get a procedure and it took forever to get it. Well, that's kind of now been the, for a lot of people, the narrative, the assumed or accepted belief that our medical system takes forever for things to get done. That if you're here, you are going to be waiting a long, long time to get help. Is that, however, true? Well, a new study that came that was released today says, actually, people in this country, most people are getting priority, so needed stuff, priority surgeries within target times that have been set forward. They are getting them reasonably quickly, which sounds to me not only like opposite to what we've been hearing for a lot of the time, but it sounds like very good news. Jennifer De Silva is the manager of emerging issues for the Institute for Health Information. She is the um, the one. This is the group that put forward this study today. She joins me now, Jennifer. Thanks for doing this. Thanks, no problem. I'm glad to be here. So, um, I want to make sure I understand what these words mean because when we talk about target wait times, does saying target wait time mean speedy, or does it just mean that we have set forward a time frame that is acceptable and things are coming in under that time? That's right. So what we have here is, um, or what we're reporting in our report is um, for these specific priority procedures, uh, benchmarks, which are, you know, evidence-based goals that each province or jurisdiction is going to try to strive to meet while balancing other um, priorities uh, within their healthcare system. And they express the amount of time that clinical evidence shows is appropriate to wait for a procedure. So it doesn't necessarily mean that it's lightning fast. It just means that you're not going to have more harm done to you by waiting that long. That's right. It's how much time is appropriately, uh, generally thought to be appropriate for each procedure. So again, the narrative that you've probably heard this too, that people will say, oh, I had to wait forever. What this is sounding like it's saying though is it's pretty positive that people are getting their operations, getting their procedures done when they need to have at least had them done so that it's not adversely affecting their health in the long run. Yeah, that's generally true. What we found this year is about three out of four Canadians had their priority procedures done within these benchmark timeframes. But that, of course, very much depends on which procedure we're looking at and where people receive care. Okay, let's go through a few of those because I think you picked five, right? There were five that were uh, looked at this. One of them, you looked at people who break a hip and they got their, most of them, something like 86% got surgery within 48 hours. Now, I want to ask you, breaking a hip, we all hear about people who break their hips, usually elderly people. Um, why, why is breaking a hip one of the ones that's on here? What makes it unique or what makes it one of the benchmarks that you would use in the limited number to determine whether or not something's being done quickly? Yeah, so that's a great question. These were all priority procedures that were identified back in 2004 um, by the uh, provincial, uh, the various provincial first ministers as um, uh, pr- uh, pr- um you know, surgeries or procedures or areas that we would monitor wait times to kind of get a sense of how the system is functioning. So 
again, not to be weird, but breaking a hip, it's not anything that's unique about a broken hip. It's just one of the things we decided this was one of the ones we were going to look at and see how it did. That's right. Okay. So there's nothing unique about broken hips in this, in this province or this country. We don't have an abnormally high number of broken hips or something. It's just, here's one we can keep an eye on. No, it's, that's exactly right. There was a range of um, priority procedures that were identified as ones that we would monitor wait times as a reflection of the general um, how the system is functioning generally. Okay, so people break their hip usually within 48 hours. Almost all of them get it done. Uh, joint replacement, I'm assuming that's knees, hips, other, probably those two mostly, uh, within 182 days most of the time. Now that's what, that's the time frame that's, that's acceptable, but that's the one that sort of struck me. 182 days does seem like it's a while. Yeah, so that's about six months. And again, these wait times are from the time that you've met with your doctor and decided, or you're the specialist and decided that um, a procedure is needed to the time that the procedure is done. Um, so there would be additional wait times on top of these, you know, to you know, uh, going to your GP or wait times to see a specialist. Those aren't captured in these wait times. These wait times and the benchmarks for them are associated with the time that once that decision is made to go forward with the procedure. So what we found in, in Canada is that uh, 79% of patients receive their hip fracture, or sorry, their hip replacement uh, within those time frames, and 73% for knee replacement. The one that I was very encouraged by, I'll be honest, and maybe it's just because it seems like there's been a lot of people that we've heard of recently around our family that have been dealing with cancer, radiation treatments for cancer. Almost everybody across the country, if they needed it, got radiation within the 28-day mark, Um, which again, seems encouraging, if only because that's one of the things, one of the diseases that it it could get out of hand very quickly if you didn't get the treatment on time. That's right. That's exactly what we found with this year's report. We found that radiation therapy, similar to what we found last year, continues to do well um, in that all provinces are reporting over 90% of patients started their radiation therapy within the 28-day benchmark. And in Ontario, that was 99%. Yeah, which, you know, not much complaining about that if you're getting it within 99 days. Now here though, Jennifer, here's the thing that I'm trying to understand then. You probably as well as I have, I don't think that probably I'm the only one who has heard people complain about how long it takes to get some sort of procedure done or some sort of service. That's a, we do, we like to complain about stuff and we do it well sometimes and sometimes it's valid and sometimes it isn't. But I'm wondering when we do hear people now complaining about how long it takes to get something, is that suggesting then when we look at these numbers that maybe our expectations of how fast things should be are out of whack? possibly be true. So, uh, and, But the other thing to consider is that um, what we're not capturing here is wait times for uh, to see the specialist or wait times for GPS. Ah. And those aren't included in these numbers. Um, Kai Hai did recently report, um, come out with a report on the Commonwealth Fund where we looked internationally. And although that's based on survey, um, some Canadians were, were reporting longer waits for those um, wait times than compared to these ones. Okay. So this is, so I'm clear then, this is after you've seen the person and they have recommended the treatment, this is the time frame, not necessarily to see the doctor in the first place. That's right. That's right. That's once, once it's been decided that you need this, the, the procedure done. All right. Because that, that does change things a little bit because we don't have those numbers, do we? No, we don't have comparable numbers across the country for those. One area, and I wanted to bring this up, I meant to a minute ago, one area that is actually down. So all these other ones that we're falling within the time frame that we're supposed to get across the country seem to be doing very well. One area that is taking longer is we seem to be falling off the mark with cataract surgeries, which again, I, I think it's just one of the ones you've, you've marked. 
Any idea why suddenly cataract surgeries take forever or for a lot longer to get? Yeah, that's that's an interesting one that we found nationally. So it's the one area where we found that um, wait times are continuing to grow. Um, and in Ontario as well, we noticed that uh, the, the wait times for cataract surgery or the percent of people that are treated within that benchmark time frame is, is down compared to five years ago. Um, when we looked at the data, one of the things we noticed was that the volumes for cataract surgery weren't as increasing as much as we saw for other priority procedures. And we know with the aging population, um, you know, the, the, the number of people that would likely be needing cataracts could be increasing. So one of the possible reasons for that could be um, that we're just not doing enough cataract surgeries to keep up with demand. But exactly what is going on across the country is very much depends probably on the jurisdictions um, and different things could be affecting these numbers across the country. Did the study that you did, first of all, did this come from, what was the, what was the thing that spurred this in the first place when you started doing this? Do you know, I mean, was it the fact that people were complaining that we decided to start looking at it and let's see if we can actually find out if those are legitimate complaints or what was, what brought this on in the first place? Yeah, no, that's a great question. So this is, I think, the 12th report that um, CIHI has done on wait times in Canada. It's an annual report that we put out. Um, and these priority procedures were established back in 2004. And these were ones where the first ministers had identified um, areas, um, you know, where we would monitor and compare wait times across the country and uh, provinces would make um, improvements in these wait times. So um, that was back in 2004. So we've been monitoring these, these areas ever since. Is, was there anything done, was there anything looked into as far as, because the other one that everyone always likes to talk about was emergency room wait times. Is there anything in here in the study about emergency room times? So, you know, we, do, we don't capture emergency room wait times in this study. However, Kaihai does have information on emergency wait times on our website in our uh, Your Health System. So if people would like to go to our website at uh, kaihai.ca and uh, in our Your Health System tool, there is information um, on emergency department wait times there. Let me throw one more thing at you, and I don't even know if you can answer this one because it's a hypothetical and, and <laughs> you know, but let me, tell me if you can't, but let me throw it at you anyway. Because it's a little bit of a controversial territory. I know this. People don't like talking about this. But we always have the discussion, or it seems to come up every now and again, about a two-tier plan. And I'm wondering, when we look at the wait times that we're having for this, and we're trying to get people under a certain time frame, an acceptable time frame, if there, was, if there were private clinics and someone could go and say, I'm going to spend 25000 bucks and jump the queue and get my hip replaced ahead of everyone else, would that not potentially make the line shorter for the people who are waiting in the other one, in the public one? Yeah, so that's an interesting question and one that the, the study doesn't... I, I know. No, yeah. I know. <laughs> <laughs> but one thing I could say is uh, that there was an international study by the OECD looking at different uh, wait time strategies in different West, um, uh, countries. And what they found was that contracting with the private uh, sector did only have a weak potential impact on wait time reduction. So it didn't seem to solve the problem. It is, uh, it is a fascinating study that actually um, I think is going to take some of the steam out of some of the people who complain. That doesn't mean that there's not any reason to be thinking that th- some things are a little slower, but um, it, is, uh, it is definitely, as I say, something that is illuminating, and, uh, and I'm glad you guys did it. Jennifer De Silva for the Canadian Institute for Health Information. Thanks for taking time tonight. Well, thanks for having me. Um, you know, it's really interesting because a colleague of mine, and I appreciate Jennifer doing this, um, a colleague of mine at The Spectator, on Sunday night, I think, 
accidentally went to get a knife out of a drawer and sliced her hand exceedingly badly. He put pictures on Facebook and it was grotesque. It was, it was, it looked horrible. The picture thankfully was after she had been stitched up, his wife. But here was the thing about it. The reason I bring this up. From the time they arrived at emergency until the time she had been looked at, x-rayed, seen by a specialist, sewed up and walked out the door was a total of 90 minutes. And that was, according to him, with other people in the emergency room, waiting room. So it wasn't that they were the only people there. Which suggests to me, maybe, that some of the time that we go, and I've been, I've had to wait in the emergency room. I had to wait, I was there a while ago and had to wait a long time. It seems to me that we still have a pretty quick system quite frankly, when you have a dire situation, if you walk in and you are bleeding like crazy, or you've had some sort of horrible incident, or you're having a heart attack, I can tell you that a number of years ago, when my wife was pregnant with our first child, she fell. I got to tell you what, you walk into an, you know, you don't walk in, you roll in in a wheelchair into an emergency room as in seven or seven and a half, eight month pregnant woman who has fallen You don't wait around. You get great service and you get it fast. We had more doctors in that emergency room than you could possibly count. We like to complain and believe me, we all like to complain, but sometimes you got to look at this and say, you know, we don't really have it that badly by the looks of it. You look at the numbers, you look at the actual numbers and the anecdotal information. We don't really have it all that bad. So it seems. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. Last week, well, wrapped up on the weekend, but it was leading into last weekend. Last weekend and last week, the CFL, Canadian Football League, did something different, new, very unique. They decided that in order to get a little bit of attention and get some eyeballs on the league in the offseason when generally the CFL is back page, if any page at all, they had a CFL week. I don't know if that was, I can't remember if that was the exact name for it, but they had a CFL week. It was a gigantic CFL celebration in Regina, which is a, an appropriate place for it. They had the Hall of Fame class announced. They had the Combine. They had events. They had signings. They had great players from the league flown in. It was, it was an all-encompassing CFL week. I'm wondering what people thought about that one. And I wanted to bring in this guy because, man, no one knows the CFL more than this guy, Rick Zamperin of 900 CHML, who just finished doing seven hours, I think, of on-air here, raced home, had a steak and lobster tail, and then is now ready to do this tonight. Rick, thanks for doing this. That was a very accurate uh, assertion of what I did post uh, employment hours today. Yes, well, you know, I, I do know that Mrs. Zamperin Always has the steak and lobster tail ready when you get home. It's like I have to snap fingers and it's on the table. <laughs> <laughs> uh, your thoughts on this idea of this CFL week and this concept of in the middle of the off season when no one is traditionally thinking of the CFL, let's have a gigantic celebration in the league. What do you think of it? You know what? I think on, on the surface it's a great idea because uh, if they didn't have a, a celebration or a week like this, uh, no one would be talking about the CFL. And, and I'll pause for a moment just to say, um, uh, I'll get back to this point in a second. But 
when you bring uh, Hall of Famers, when you announce a new Hall of Fame class... A really good Hall of Fame class, too. Yeah, perhaps one of the best ever, yep, yep. Uh, when, when you consider the, you know, the players on the list and, and the builders on the list. Uh, but when you bring all these individuals together under one roof uh, in one week, and you bring a lot of the media there, or at least invite a lot of the media there... And, and just bring more attention to your product, I, I can't see that being a bad thing at all. Uh, the number of newspaper and magazine uh, articles and, and TV and radio reports, uh, not only in Regina, but certainly from coast to coast, or at least in all the CFL markets, are, are going to be ramped up a little bit. There's going to be a story about CFL Week, uh, usually once a day, if not maybe three or four times you know, in that week. Um, the downside, or at least the only negative that I can see is you know, they just held this you know, fantastic, uh, you know, first of its kind, uh, sensational uh, week in Regina. But I can't tell you how many people that I've run into over the last week following CFL Week that have said, hey, did you hear about that story? Or I didn't know. Or, wow, what a great thing that was. I mean, the buzz afterwards has really subsided other than, wow, that was a great week. Well, let's cover a couple of those things, because first of all, you said, how could it be bad if you have all these people there? And I agree with you with one caveat, and that is during the Grey Cup week, if you think, can think back that far, and if everyone can think back that far, there are a lot of people involved with CFL football and a lot of eyes on that game there. And I recall that when the commissioner, Jeffrey Orridge, had his state of the game press conference, he got ripped after that. He, I mean, it came not as a positive thing for the league when all those eyeballs were on it. If you do it wrong, if you present it wrong, now with all the eyeballs on it, it looks really wrong. So if you do it right, it's great. If you mess it up, it's really, really bad. I guess it all depends on whether the commissioner of your league uh, denies that concussions are a part of football. (laughs) I think that would kind of, (laughs) you know, turn the tables on things. But But I think think as a whole, it's, it's a great idea to bring... You know, all these people who are associated with this great game uh, in, in one venue or, or a few venues in a community and, uh, and just attract more attention to you know, a sport and a league that needs a little more love. And it seemed as though, to be clear, that it didn't have the gaff this time. It seemed like it was right. largely a really nice pat on the back for the league. I mean, do you, when you look at what happened, did it do, do you think that it did what it was supposed to? Well, yeah, no, I think from the standpoint of, um, you know, making players accessible and, and uh, you know, just showcasing the league and what it's all about and here are our stars, I think in, in, in that sense it was a success. But getting back to that buzz factor is, you know, we're still several weeks away from training camp or we're a few months away from the start of, of this, uh, you know, 2017 season. So, you know, how much of a... Uh, carry through or momentum is is the league going to get from a week like this? It's great to have. It's fantastic, especially for Regina or, or for anybody who can make it out to where it's being held. But really, if you're in in Montreal, how much are you talking about CFL Week or how much are you talking about? Hey, maybe we should get season tickets this year. I mean, at the end of the day, I think that has to be the purpose of a week like this: shine a spotlight in the league, get more people talking about the CFL and interested in attending games and supporting. Uh, you know, the franchises that are involved. So did it preach, perhaps, if there was one negative, did it preach too much to the choir? Those who were right there, yeah, they were all over it, but everyone else maybe didn't reach those corners of the country it was supposed to? 
Well, you know, that, that is hard to judge. Obviously, there was a lot more attention paid uh, during that week because there are so many, you know, players accessible. You can tell their stories. You know, having the CFL combine there, you know, the crop of, you know, the next CFL Canadian stars who are going to impact this league, I think is, you know, fantastic addition. Um, but in terms of, uh, you know, whether it's going to affect that, uh, you know, fringe fan, uh, if they weren't in Regina, and I'm not sure if there's any fringe fans in Regina, but you know, if you're here at Hamilton and you're you're kind of on the fringe, you've been to a Ticats game before, but you're not completely hooked. I'm not sure having a CFL week in another community is going to you know bring that person hook, line, and sinker into into a season ticket holder. Do you think it would work anywhere else, though, Rick? I mean, you just touched on it. Regina is goofy when it comes to the CFL. It works there because everybody, it seems, in town is a CFL fan, is a Rough Rider fan specifically. Would it work if you dropped it into Hamilton or if you dropped it into Ottawa or somewhere else that's not Regina? Well, I think because Regina was such a success, I mean, from all the things that uh, you know, I've, I've read and heard uh, about this, this first CFL week was that it was an overwhelming success. So I think if, if you were to hold it in any other CFL city, including Toronto, I think it would be maybe not as successful, but I think it, it it has at least some legs in this you know first few years of this CFL week existence. So you you plop it in Toronto for a week. I think if you bring you know all the media there and you bring all the CFL stars, I think more attention will be paid uh, to the league during that week. But uh, you know let's see it ten fifteen years from now, and if it's still as successful, or if they have to all all of a sudden have to come up with new ways to get fans. Uh, you know, interested and involved in what CFL Week has to offer. I mean, that that's going to be the proof is going to be in that in that pudding. You know, ten fifteen years from now. Part of it, part of this was this was all built, I guess, partially around the combine. Now, for the, a lot of people know what a combine is. Some don't. The combine it's not a farming device, although that can be it too. <laughs> it's pretty close. <laughs> it is a testing ground, a physical testing ground where they do standing high jump and they do 40-yard sprint times and they do bench presses and all these things. They test the physicality and the athleticism, basically, of the players who are eligible to be drafted. That's the short form of it. Are you a combine believer? Do you look at the combine, because not everyone is, do you look at the combine and say, Man, he's an okay player, but he can jump 65. He's got a 65-inch vertical, and he runs the 40 in 4-4. i got to draft that guy. Or do you look at the combine and say, I watched him play for four years. He can't play football. I don't care how much he bench presses. That doesn't do him any good. What do you look at it as? Well, number one, I'm a a huge fan of the combine. I watch the NFL combine year in and year out with their, you know, uh, 24-hour, you know, five, seven-day-a-week, however long it is, coverage. I just find it enthralling and and learning more about uh, the individual, their backstory, you know, where they're from, you know, certain hurdles that they had to overcome, their, you know, the family kind of history. And I think the, the NFL combine, certainly the CFL combine, uh, is just one piece of the puzzle that GMs and, and VP of player personnel directors will use to kind of uh, solidify whether or not you know that particular player is someone that they would be interested in come draft day, or if they are a free agent after the draft, if they haven't been drafted by any team, would they be interested in drafting this person? So, you know, what was their 40-yard dash? What was their vertical leap? How did they do in the interview process? Uh, and I think all these kind of just uh, are little puzzle pieces that will, uh, you know, uh, unveil a portrait of what kind of player this this individual can be in, in year one and then year five and, and, and so on, if they're still in the league by, uh, by that time. 
So I think, uh, again, it's just a, you know, a snippet of you know, what they can be uh, once the real game does start and, and they're on the football field. See, I always, I, I've always had some difficulty with the attention given to the combine. Because, again, I look at a guy and I go, look, I watched him play, and he's a great player, but he may not have bench-pressed as much as someone else. But guys get so excited when a guy can do a whole bunch of bench-presses. Yeah. And it's like, well, is this, not, is this a bench-press contest or is this a football thing? That's well, what always throws me a bit. Yeah, and you know the the one that gets me the most, I think, in, in terms of that that line of thinking, would be the forty yard dash. You know, mm. what kind of forty time does he have? And that and that's that's a, that's you know a great statistic or a great snippet of information uh, when you're looking at you know a receiver or a running back or a defensive back. But when you have offensive and defensive <laughs> linemen running a forty yard dash, I mean, they rarely run forty yards in a game. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure what they're gleaning from that type of information, but it is fun watching those big behemoths rumble down for forty yards. Well, it's not just that; it's that if you run the forty in four three or four 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 three right. would be exceptional. If you run the forty in four four, guys go crazy. But yeah. if you run it in four five. They're less excited. It's a tenth of a second. How much more coverage could you do in a tenth of a second? It's not like you're saying, oh, he ran the 100-yard dash or whatever it is. He yeah. shaved a second off of there. I, I always find it very funny. It, just how, again, how crazy people get about certain fractions of whatever. Yeah, and, and the other thing, too, especially with the 40, is you know how many times does a player run in a straight line to do anything? Sure. Uh, you know, you, you can look at the, the you know the shuttle or even some of the one-on-one drills that happen at the CFL Combine, and and that gives you a little more of an indication of how quick or fast or uh, you know his his agility is, and I think it just adds to uh, you know that whole complete picture of what what kind of player that is. But yeah, the forty-yard dash, uh, I like watching it, and it's it's great watching uh, you know who's the fastest and who's the slowest. But uh, it's just uh, you know a, a smidge of information that a GM is going to use. See, I think Chris Jones in last year's NFL combine was the guy who set the new standard that you could actually test the guy in the 40 as a defensive lineman. Chris Jones was a six foot five, is a six foot five, 315 pound defensive lineman. He got drafted by the Kansas City Chiefs. You may or may not remember this. Uh, during his 40, and I don't know how to say this delicately, <laughs> his penis flopped out of his pants as he was running. <laughs> <laughs> that to me, not to have that hanging out, but that to deal with the distraction and how am I going to deal with it? See, that to me is a test of what kind of acumen you might have in a stressful situation on a football field. That was a test. But what made that moment <laughs> even more hilarious and even more uh, memorable was that he didn't just lose part of himself while he was running. No, it popped out as he was fall as he was colliding with the turf. In uh, in Indianapolis, and uh, I'm not sure if he suffered any sort of rug burn, oh. but it was absolutely hilarious. Uh, yeah, not, not I'll put it this way. I don't want to get too gross, but if that particular part of my body had fallen out of my pant, the last thing I'm doing is diving face down at full speed on artificial turf. <laughs> well, I think he did to you know conceal. Yes, he did. This was happening. Yeah. And then as he was hitting the ground, he was thinking, "Well, that was a poor plan. <laughs> <laughs> Should have thought this through." But again, uh, yes, anyway, it is, uh, it, it's all part, not that, but the whole, the combine, everything else is all part of this CFL week. And I, I tell you, I, last thing, is this the right time to do it? If you're going to do it again, and they say they are, because it was considered a very big success. If you are going to do it, is this the time to do it, or do you do it a month or a month and a half later so it's 
two or three weeks ahead of the season when you're starting to fire people up again? Well, if you are going to delay it, that is going to put a cramp into the combine. Of course it is. Yep. We know obviously the combine comes before the CFL draft. So if you want to, you know, kind of delay or or set back the CFL calendar, uh, if you will, then the, obviously that's going to have to be taken into consideration. But I think this event could work without the combine because, you know, you ask Joe Schmo on, on the street here in Hamilton or even in Regina, you know, who is, you know, the, the 21st ranked, uh, you know, CFL prospect. And, you know, 99 times out of 100, that person is going to have no idea how it is. So I think that uh, that CFL week uh, premise can live without the combine. It's a great to have. So if you do want to, you know, delay it a little bit, have it maybe uh, a couple of weeks before training camps open, uh, I think that would be fantastic too. But, uh, you know, the, the timing is debatable. I mean, you could have it in the, in the middle of January or you can have it, uh, you know, sometime uh, you know, after March break, when I think both would uh, both would uh, would work in 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 the same regard. What about attention into the league, Rick? What about the same thing with the draft? To delay the draft? No, no, no. To make this week part of the draft. Oh, I see what you mean. So yeah. you've got all the you got the Hall of Fame thing, and you got everything else that's going. It doesn't have to necessarily be the combine. You can. I mean, there are ways you can still do this. I, that's the only question for me. I think it was a great success. It's a question of when. Is this the perfect time to do it, or closer to the season? Does it have more of a, as you described it off the bat, a residual carryover into the excitement of the season? I we will see if this has any kind of long-term impact on people being excited. Because I think you're right. I think people in Montreal or in Ottawa or whatever, they probably didn't get nearly as much out of this as they did in Regina. Yeah. And you know what? I think sports fans in general like drafts. Uh, you know, you talk about the the explosion of fantasy sports. It's all about the draft. I think the CFL week would be much more impactful, much more exciting if you have the draft element as opposed to the combine element. There's no doubt in my mind. Interesting stuff. It is. Uh, there's lots of stuff online. If people missed it entirely, they can go online and read about this. It's. Uh, it was. It was interesting, and it will definitely be done again. And I'm guessing that somewhere down the road, two years, three, four, five. I don't know when it will happen in Hamilton. Maybe before we even get a Grey Cup. Although that's a different discussion for a different <laughs> day. Uh, Rick Zamperin, thanks for doing this today. Appreciate it. All right. Take care. Uh, you can. Um, I hesitate to even say this, but online, if you really wanted to see that clip of Chris Jones running his 40, for the record, you don't actually, in case you go look it up, you don't actually see any parts of Chris Jones you really shouldn't. It's more the, you you see the response of him realizing that part of Chris Jones was where it shouldn't have been and his reaction to try and cover it up, which made it very funny. It, it, it is not an X-rated clip, let's put it that way. It is more of a... Funny clip, but still, probably keep the kids <laughs> away from the computer the first time you watch it, just to make sure your version of it is the one I saw. The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900. AM 900 CHML.